hope you're as excited as I am to go to the book of Ephesians one more time. And we'll open up there to the sixth chapter. I've been preaching from this letter here for quite some time. And I know that even with that, there's surely no way that I could bring forth everything that is brought forth from this letter here. An incredible letter to the church at Ephesus, but also to the followers and churches of the Lord Jesus Christ in every place and in every age. This letter has a special power and relevance to us. And so I'd like today to draw forth a few more final lessons out of this letter to the Ephesians. So this is Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading in verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that ye may also know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. One thing I noted about this letter way back at the very beginning of this study is that the way that this letter is presented shows us that it is uh, even first and foremost to the church at Ephesus, but along with that, it is written to all believers in Jesus Christ in every time and in every place. Paul had a special relationship with Ephesus. He spent years there, and he had a close personal uh, relationship with them. And yet, here in this letter, he spends very little time talking about his personal affairs. In fact, he says that he's going to send this messenger, Tychicus, this brother, with this letter, and he's going to let them know all about the personal affairs. We don't get to hear all of those things, but what we do hear and what we do read is relevant to us today, and it's as relevant, as pertinent, as pressing for you today as it was in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. Because it is the ageless, timeless truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, the impact of that on our lives, and the instruction of what we are to do with that here in this life. One of the last, perhaps the last, exhortation that Paul gives here to the Ephesians is the first one that I'll speak of as a lesson for us, is that he encourages them, he exhorts them, To pray for those that preach the word of God. He encourages them to pray. He says, uh, and for me, verse 19, and for me, that is for Paul, a preacher of the gospel, one whose calling in life was to make known the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ among all nations. 
And he says, pray for me also. He had already exhorted them to pray for all the saints. He said, pray for me. Pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That is, that he desired their prayers for him, that God would enable him to make known the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ in all the places that he went. That he would be able to do it with boldness. That he would be able to do it with clarity. And that it would be received by those that heard it. So we too are exhorted today that we would pray for those that preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Because it is by the power of the word, through the working of the Holy Spirit, that the message of Jesus Christ gets spread throughout the world and that, uh, that believers are called out to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 1, Paul writing to these Ephesian believers, he writes to them and he speaks about what took place. He says, ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So they heard the the good news of their salvation. And that was how their experience of coming to the knowledge of Christ and being transformed by it began. They heard the good news of their salvation. It says after after that they heard, they trusted in Christ. They trusted in Christ. They hoped in Christ after they heard the good news of their salvation. And then it says after they believed, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so we see the importance of the word of God, the announcement of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. It comes and it goes out into the world and it comes with power proclaiming the message, message of salvation by grace, the message of the preeminence of Jesus Christ over all creation. And that is what is spoken of here in this this letter. So we are encouraged to pray for those who preach the word. Paul uh, writes this letter. He writes it to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And a, a second lesson I want us to draw from this is the importance, the significance of what it means to be called to be saints. When that message of the gospel comes into the world and and it is uh, received by those who have hearts ready to receive it, who have ears ready to hear it, then it works in them the power and calls us to be saints, calls us to be saints. And that's to who's being written to, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be a saint? What does it mean to be called to be a saint? Well, to be a saint means to be set apart for a sacred purpose. It means to be called to be holy. And to be holy is to be set apart, dedicated, and consecrated to the service of God in a special way. And that's an important characteristic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in this world, that we are called to be saints, that we are set apart for a sacred purpose. I know I've used this uh, illustration before, but the old covenant 
instruments of worship of God are figures to us that teach us lessons about their fulfillment in the new. And in the old covenant, there was the temple of God, which was built out of stones and it was built out of wood and it was built out of materials that uh, could have been used for common things, but they became holy because they were set apart and they were dedicated specially to the service of God. The uh, flesh hooks that were used for the sacrifices in the temple, they were holy, not because they were made out of some other kind of material or they they were different from other uh, normal common flesh hooks, but they were sacred and they were holy because they were dedicated to the service of God. And so it is with every one of us that is called to be a believer and follower in Jesus Christ. We are, we are uh, made of the same thing as anyone else, but we have been called to a sacred purpose. We have a high calling. And uh, those that are uh, set apart and dedicated to the service of God are that way because God has chosen us to it. Not because we first chose it for ourselves. Uh, Any uh, holy calling in the scriptures was not something that someone chose for themselves. Think about the priesthood in the old covenant. You were not, uh, you didn't uh, wake up one day and decide, you know what, I want to be a priest. I'm going to choose for myself to become a priest. No, you had to be chosen to the priesthood. You had to be chosen by God for that calling. And so it is with us who are called to be saints under the new covenant. We have been granted all spiritual blessings by the choice of God. God has chosen us to that. And that is uh, much of what Ephesians begins by speaking about. In verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so we see that the initiative and the calling and, and the working of all of these things begins with the, the electing choice of God to choose a people for himself and set us apart to that holy calling of honoring and praising him in this world. And so we see from that also that salvation is entirely and completely by grace. It is by the gift of God. And it speaks about this, that that we in ourselves didn't come from an origin such that we uh, deserved to be set apart and, and chosen by God, such that we deserve to be saved by God. But in fact, it says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. That we uh, walked, it says, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. That was our state before God called us out of it. We were, it says in another place, we were without hope, And without God in the world. That is where we came from. And so it is only by the amazing 
generous, merciful grace of God that we are plucked out of that place of destruction and redeemed unto God by His power. He has, he has chosen us to be inheritors of all of the blessings and gifts of salvation. And it speaks about these things. It, as this letter begins to the Ephesians, it begins with essentially a song of praise, a song that is blessing God, a song that is blessing God the Father, that is blessing the Son, that is blessing the Spirit because of the uh, multitude of spiritual blessings that we are given. The forgiveness of sins by the precious blood of Christ. The inheritance uh, um, among the saints. And all of these things are by grace. And that's what it speaks about in Ephesians chapter 2. It says in verse 8, For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So it is by the generous gift of God that we are saved by grace and we're called to that holy calling, that holy purpose. Two of the ways that our calling is represented here in the book of Ephesians are illustrated to us uh, with very vivid and powerful images. One is of a temple. It speaks about a temple that's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And remember that part. Remember how it, that building centers around Christ, how he is that chief cornerstone, how he is the most important foundation stone of that building. And then the building is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then it says, you also are built together with them into that building. And that is a, a way that the church of Jesus Christ is represented, that we are a building, a temple, because it says it is a habitation of God through the Spirit. It is the, uh, and it is the uh, parallel to the old covenant temple. That temple that was made with wood and stone, that was made with materials made with hands, and those materials made with hands, they built a house. And it was a house of God. It was a dwelling place of God. And God came down in a thick cloud and he dwelt among it. And he filled the temple and his presence filled it. In a powerful, mighty way that God made his presence here on earth in that temple. And people went and they met with God there. They met with His presence there and they offered worship to Him there. They offered sacrifices to God of thanksgiving and sacrifices. And they offered incense of, of uh, praise to God in that place. But in the New Covenant, God's temple is made up of what are called living stones. Made up of people that are built together, something that is referred to as a spiritual house. And so I want to note a couple things about this. One, that this is made up of believers being joined together, and it is therefore a very high calling and holy purpose that God Himself has purposed to come and to dwell in us. Secondly, 
that this is something that describes a corporate reality. It is something that is not individualistic, but it is something that we only are fully part of when we are joined together with other believers in this household, in this temple of God that's a habitation of God through the Spirit. That is that your service to God in this life cannot only be something that is done as an individual. It must be done together with other believers because that stone by itself doesn't serve that purpose. But when it is built together as a household, it fulfills that purpose. The other illustration that's given to us is that the church is called the body of Christ and members in particular. That we are parts of a body joined together and it says that Christ is the head. And there, and there we have again, when, in that, that image of the people of God joined together for that holy purpose, Christ is at the preeminent position in all things. Christ is the preeminent position of that, that head, and the whole body is serving the will and the purpose of the head, and the purpose that's being worked in the body is so that it might grow up into Christ in all things. And so we're, we're literally given as a description of the church of Jesus Christ, we're given the description of a human body. And the human body has all different parts, but they're joined together, and together they make one whole complete body. And each one of us uh, forms a part of that whole body. No one of us can be the whole thing. No one of us can fully achieve the purpose of that body any more than your hand by itself, severed from the body, could fulfill all the purposes of your body. And so, again, we see that that illustration that's given us is one that is given to us that shows forth the necessity that we are serving God and fulfilling our calling together. Filling that calling together. And it is that through the effectual working, it says, of the Spirit in every part might be working together for the edifying, the building up of the entire body. And so that brings me to a next lesson that we see from this letter that, that I want you to take away from this. When it, when it comes to Ephesians chapter 4, after in the first three chapters, Paul laid out the, the doctrine of God's salvation by grace uh, through the sacrifice and offering of Jesus Christ, after he laid out the preeminence of Christ over all things, and after he described that it was God's purpose in the fullness of time to join Jews and Gentiles together into one, to take down the dividing wall between them and join them together into one household, he comes to Ephesians chapter 4 and he says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. 
So consider, for a moment, consider the magnitude of the calling that you've been called to. If everything that I have just said uh, settles into your mind and, and, and makes an impact in your heart, and you see the highness of that calling to be holy to God, to be set apart for a sacred purpose, to be God's dwelling place in this earth, to be uh, His body, the body of Christ, whose purpose is to fully live out and manifest the life of Christ in this earth, that is a high calling. That is a holy calling that we together have been called to. God has worked individually in each one of His people, but He's done so not that we would serve God on our own, but that together we might fulfill the calling that God has given us. And so, that's a powerful exhortation. He says, I beseech you that ye walk worthy of the calling of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Uh, Sometimes even today, we still speak of a job as a vocation, of a profession as a vocation. Well, that idea of vocation, that refers to calling. When people refer to uh, uh, their work in life as their vocation, they're talking about the reality that the work that we do here in this life, it's not merely... Uh, for the purpose of just putting food on our table or just uh, getting done what needs to get done. But we have a calling of God. We have a purpose in life that God has given us. And how much uh, more so that's the case for a holy calling like this. A calling to be servants of God in this world and to show forth His praise. And so, he says, I beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And so we are exhorted to strive by our actions and our attitude to live up to the highness of that calling that God has given us. That is, it is not just what we do, but it is also the attitude, the mindset that we have when doing it. And so he immediately begins. He says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. This is not just outward action, but it is an inward change of heart, mind, attitude, mindset, all those things that leads out to the fruit of actions that are glorifying to God and edifying to the church as a whole, edifying to the people of God. And so when you think about church, when you think about coming to church, I encourage you, I encourage you, To not just come thinking about what you can receive, what you can get out of it, but what you can give, what you can do to serve, to help build up the body as a whole. What words of encouragement can you speak to help someone else? Uh, What words of hope can you express to give somebody hope when they're discouraged? Uh, what, what helping hand can you lend to help someone that's in need? What can we do to build up one another rather than just coming to it thinking about what we can get, what we can receive out of it? 
And so we're encouraged to this calling to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. In doing so, part of that, part of fulfilling that calling is to, the, the way Paul describes it, to put off the old man and to put on the new man. That is to put away sin and the works of darkness and instead put on the things that are glorifying to God and edifying to the church. And he gives many examples of this throughout the, the following chapters, but I'll just point out two that I think demonstrate really well what this is like. Uh, he, he exhorts in the course of Ephesians 4 and 5 to put off the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And in doing so, he uh, exhorts uh, those to put away sin and to take on righteousness. He says in verse 28, he says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. There's, there's just one of the instructions that he gives, but I think it powerfully demonstrates when the work of the gospel, when the work of the truth comes into people's lives, the transforming power that that has over us. He uses the, he, let me use the example of, of a thief. He says, let him that stole steal no more. So what is, what, is, uh, what is he talking about here? Someone that steals. Why does someone steal? Well, someone steals in, in stealing. They're taking from someone else and so to the end that they might satisfy their own desires. And so the, the beginning desire is one of selfishness because it is to satisfy your own desires. And the action that results from that is one that causes harm or loss to someone else. So, so a selfish desire leading to a harmful outward action. What's the transformation that takes place? Well, he says, let him that steal, steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good. So he exhorts for a change of action. Instead of stealing from someone else, work and produce something good. Well, that's good. That's a good change. But it's not just a change in action for the same result. It goes on and says that he may have to give to him that needeth. And so not only is the action changed, but the motivation and the desire leading to the action has changed. Selfish desire leading to harmful action is transformed. And now instead we have an unselfish, generous desire leading to a fruitful, beneficial action towards others. Second example is in uh, verse 29. Next verse, he says, this is uh, Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. So Jesus said, when he was teaching, he says, out of the treasures of the heart, the mouth speaks. He said, uh, a good tree brings forth good fruit, and a bad tree brings forth evil fruit. 
And so it is that the things that come out of our mouths are the overflow of what's in our hearts. The things that come out of our mouths are expressions of, of what's inside of our heart. Uh, sometimes we'll, people will say, uh, you can't know somebody's heart. And in, in, in an absolute sense, that's true. In an absolute sense, only God truly knows what's fully in someone's heart. But it's not entirely true that you can't know what's in somebody's heart. How can you know what's in somebody's heart? You can know by the words that come out because the words that come out of somebody's mouth are the evidence of what's inside our hearts. And so he says, let uh, no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. And so we have a corrupt heart resulting in corrupt words which are corrupting to all those that hear them. So words of bitterness and words of strife that come out, they're harmful to those around us, and they come out of a heart that's full of strife. And he says instead, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And so we see both in terms of actions and words, we are to be transformed by the power of the truth that instead of actions and words that are harmful, corrupting, that stir up strife, that stir up trouble, that bring others down, instead we are to speak words and perform actions that build up, that edify, that strengthen, that encourage, that as he says, minister grace to the hearers. Like we're dividing out, we're serving out good things to all those that hear the words that come out of our mouth. That is the kind of change that is necessary in our lives as we put off the works of darkness and take on the words of light, the, the, the works of light. Verse 11 of chapter 5, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. And so all of this is necessary for us to fulfill that holy calling that we have. And I want you to think of something else as well. We, we often would think of something like the temple in the old covenant and then the analogy in the new the church made up of living stones of people, not, not this building, but the people together making up that church. We often think of that as something that is directed up towards God and praise to him and unconcerned with the outside world. But that's not entirely the way that it's presented to us in the scripture. It's true that first and foremost is directed towards God. Our worship is directed to praise God. It is directed towards His uh, preeminence and His glory. And all of the blessings that we have here flow to us from God. And so He is at the center and the focus of everything that we do as we worship Him, just like the letter to the Ephesians is focused and centered upon God and what God has done and how He is the bringer of blessings to us. 
Make no mistake about it. Uh, For all the exhortations that are given to us in Ephesians, the first chapters make it clear that it is from God and from God alone and by His power and His grace that all spiritual blessings that we have come. They all come from Him. Even our faith itself is described as a gift of God. Even our belief in Him is described as coming by the power, the exceeding uh, greatness of the power, of the working of His power to usward who believe. Which it says is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. The same power that raised Christ from the dead was necessary to bring an unbeliever, dark of heart, dead in trespasses and sins, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is all centered upon Him. But what is His purpose in that, in calling us out to this holy calling? Is it just for us? Is it just that we would uh, be isolated here together? No, it says, Jesus put it this way. He says, you are a city upon a hill. So you are a city upon a hill. You are, you are, he says, let your light, you are the light of the world. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So that we are, we are called to this calling that our good works might bring glory to God, not back to us. And so if we're doing our good works in such a way that everyone is praising us instead of God, then we've got it wrong. But we ought to do our good works to the end that God would be praised, that he would be glorified. Uh, Another illustration that's given us. Back in uh, the letter, back in Ezekiel, there's a vision that Ezekiel's given, and it's a vision of the temple. And in that vision of the temple, the new covenant temple, there's coming out of the temple, there's a stream of water coming out. And Ezekiel's given the vision, and a very vivid vision that he's given because he's, he's taken out to this temple and he sees this water coming out from underneath the temple. And it's just coming out, and, he wa- and he's told to walk into it, and he walks into it, and it just goes up to his ankles. And then they go out a hundred cubits or a hundred paces and a thousand, and they go out a little further. And then he goes out and the water's up to his knees. They go out further, wade into the water. Now it's up to his waist. Go out a little further, and now he goes into the water and he can't even pass over it anymore. It's, It's deep enough to swim in. He's completely submerged in this water. And then the water goes out. Remember, beginning at the temple, and the water goes out, and it spreads out throughout the world. It begins to go out, and everywhere it goes into the desert, the dry, dead desert begins to blossom, and trees come forth and bring forth fruit everywhere it goes. It even goes into the Dead Sea, and it, and it heals the waters of the sea, and it causes them to be filled with an abundance of fish. And in this, uh, in this vision that we're given which is represented to us of how from God's temple flows forth the working, the powerful working of His Spirit out into the world and brings about its healing and transforming power everywhere it goes. We can begin to see that the calling that we have 
to be the body of Christ in this world, to be his hands and his feet working his purpose in this world is, is a mighty and a powerful way through which God accomplishes his will in this world and brings about healing and glory and truth everywhere it goes. And so we ought to see that God's purpose, his calling for the church, is a high and a glorious calling. We also see, uh, as it speaks about the family relationships, husbands, wives, parents, children, servants, masters, in these household relationships that are described, it shows us the importance of how our service to God must begin in our own household. We can't fully be living out the service to God if we are not serving God rightly in our closest and most important relationships in our life. And so it gives us instruction about those things. That beginning in our own household, beginning in our own families, we would live out the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just one example in that, that we're given. Um, forgiveness. Forgiveness. You know, we, uh, as believers in Jesus Christ, if we rejoice in the good news of the gospel, the truth of the forgiveness of our sins is ever at the forefront of our heart. It is a delight to us. It is uh, one of the elements of the good news that will cause our hearts to leap with joy when we think that for all the judgment and the condemnation we deserve by the justice of God, yet in His mercy and grace, He has forgiven us our sins. This is one of the highest spiritual blessings that we have. And, it, and we've already seen, it speaks about this uh, directly. In whom, verse 7 of chapter 1, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. If you can walk out of here today, back into the world, and you can walk out knowing that by the grace of God, my sins are forgiven. That when God looks upon me, when God looks at me, He doesn't see a, a corrupt, sin-stained creature worthy of condemnation, but He sees one who is forgiven, washed clean, Clothed in robes of righteousness, not by our own works, but by the grace of God, then your heart will leap with joy at that. The weight of guilt will be lifted off. And so, as we have been forgiven, we are exhorted to forgive one another. And what a joy it is to be forgiven. But sometimes, strangely, we find it hard to forgive others who have wronged us. But when we, are, when we consider the magnitude of God's forgiveness of us, it ought not to be hard for us to forgive everyone and anyone who has wronged and offended us. And so let us live out forgiveness one another. He says... Um, in 4.32, he says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, 
even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. That's how we're to forgive. In the way that God has forgiven us, for, for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. And, and Christ is at the heart of all these things. He is preeminent. The letter to the Ephesians is centered upon His uh, greatness, His glory, His majesty, and His preeminence. And as it began in that way, also the letter ends in that way. He says in verse 23 of chapter 6, Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And so just as a final closing thoughts, let me just run through and review a few of the things, a few of the glorious things it has presented to us of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that, uh, as we've already seen in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He shed His blood. He sacrificed Himself. He laid down His life in order to purchase for us that forgiveness. That forgiveness came at a great cost. And so when we are forgiving others, it might seem like a great cost to us, but Christ paid His own blood for the forgiveness of our sins and for the sins of one another. It also goes on to say in verse 10 of chapter 1 that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and in earth. And so it speaks about how Christ and uh, God uniting all of creation in Him is His ultimate purpose and plan that all of the elect in heaven and earth, along with the angels, that, that God's glorious creation might be united in Christ in the fullness of time. We also see that He is risen from the dead in Ephesians uh, 1, verse 20, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. So He's risen from the dead. He's conquered death itself. But then after He conquered death, He was elevated up to sit at the right hand of the Father. He raised him up from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And in that position of glory, he has been granted all power and all authority over all of creation. There is no angel, no devil, no person. There is nothing in this creation that is not ultimately subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. And everything will be, in, a, in His time, in His purpose, brought into subjection to Him. Either in His mercy or in His judgment, He will conquer all things. He's been brought, it says, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And he hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And so we see the preeminence of Jesus Christ over all things, over all creation. 
There's, it, it would be impossible for you to find something, anything, that you could not put into this list here. All principality and power that he has not been put over, that he does not have authority over. So what does that mean for us? That gives us encouragement that as we look out into this world and we see many things that uh, have not yet been brought under, uh, have not yet been defeated by Christ, have not yet been brought under Him. It says we see not yet all things put under Him, but we see Jesus. Made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory above the heavens. It says in another place, it says, He must reign until He has made His enemies His footstool. He will, in time, defeat every enemy, every, every adversary. And so we can take heart, we can take courage, that whatever we face in this life, whatever we come up against, that Jesus Christ is on the throne, that He lives and He reigns forever. And he is the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all, all in all. What a privilege we have. What a privilege we have to be a habitation of God through the Spirit, to be his dwelling place here in this earth. What a privilege we have to be the body of Christ, who is the head. May we uh, keep in mind that great calling and seek in our words, in our actions, and in our mindset to walk worthy of that vocation wherewith we've been called. And may the, all the praise and all the glory be to God. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it might have a powerful impact on our hearts and our lives that we would be transformed by it, that we might walk worthy in this life of the greatness of the calling to which we have been called as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory and all praise. Amen.